What is in a person's title? Well, it's a a descriptor we use with with great frequency to describe a person's status, their their job, perhaps their, their education, their gender, their age. We have Mr. and Mrs. We have Miss and Masters, doctors and professors, managers and directors, lords and dames, prime ministers and chancellors, kings and queens, elders and deacons and members, and loads of other things. You understand the drift. And in this passage from Matthew 2, we come across one such title. Jesus has been born, it records, in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. Wise men have come from the east to Jerusalem, and upon holding court with Herod, they ask him this question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? King of the Jews is the title, a title much greater or more grandiose than any of the titles that I have just ran through. Why? Because he who has been born King of the Jews marks the culmination of the beginning of God's rescue plan for his people. Jesus' entry as King of the Jews fulfills hundreds of years of what we now term Old Testament prophecy as God sends his one and begotten only Son to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Savior that offers himself to you and to me and to all who believe and call on his name. Can you think of a title with greater meaning or depth of implication for your life right now? Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? This morning, as we consider this text from Matthew and indeed this title that has been attributed to Jesus, I would like us to try and break it down into three constituent parts. And I'm going to attempt to do that by considering the title and its meaning for us in three tenses. The King of the Jews who was, the King of the Jews who is, and the King of the Jews who is to come. But before we do that, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to to consider your word, to to meditate upon it and to just think about what you have to say to us this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear from you. Father, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, that you would... um, Just hold us accountable to your word. And Father, that you would reveal more of your goodness and your grace through it this morning. In your precious son's name. Amen. Firstly then, the king of the Jews who was. We know from our our reading of the Old Testament that prior to the birth of Jesus, the people of Israel had had a very turbulent relationship with God as a result of their disobedience and their sin. Right back in Exodus 7, we learn that God had made the Jewish people his chosen people, a people it later describes as his treasured possession. It goes all the way back to the covenant that he had made with Abraham and Jacob, latterly called Israel. And God had established himself as the rightful king and the rightful ruler, their sovereign 
However, as we fast forward through the Old Testament narrative, we get to the days of the prophet Samuel. And when we get there, we come to learn that the Jews had rejected God as their God and had demanded that Samuel provided for them an earthly king. Out of their jealousy and their short-sightedness, they wanted a king similar to those who ruled over the surrounding nations. And rejected as their king, God nonetheless gave the people what they wanted. A temporary line of human kings who would rule over Israel up until the point where it was captured by Babylon. And some of these, the minority of these kings, they would serve the Lord faithfully. They would be upright and they loved God. The majority of these kings, however, were selfish. They were corrupt and they were spiritually bankrupt. Rulers who, who plunged Israel into an era of sin and idol worship. And then we reach this, this point in time where after Saul had disobeyed the Lord and been rejected by God as king, God anoints David in his place and promises that out of David's line, a new anointed king would come to redeem Israel and establish God's rightful place on the throne of Israel. This, of course, was the, the prophesied Messiah whom the Gospels confirm is Jesus, a descendant from the line of David. Not to be discouraged or dissuaded by Israel's rejection, God's plan would introduce a new covenant that would see God's love and his forgiveness extend to all mankind, not just the Jews. For generations... The Jews had anticipated the arrival of the Messiah and the coming of the King. But unfortunately, they were so used to the leadership of the earthly kings that they had envisaged a Messiah who would come as a, a political ruler, a revolutionary, someone perhaps of royal earthly lineage. Not a lowly, humble servant and son of a carpenter. They also didn't anticipate that God's kingdom would be a spiritual, heavenly realm. And so when the wise men meet with King Herod and they ask of him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It takes Herod by surprise. Verse 4 tells us that on hearing this, that Herod went about assembling, and you can, you can just picture this, him, him getting all the chief priests, all the scribes, all the, all the scholars, all the learned men of Jerusalem, and he inquires of them, where is to be born the Christ? Herod had been called the king of the Jews by the, the Roman Senate for the last 40 years, but no one had ever referred to him as the Messiah. Messiah means the long-awaited, God-anointed ruler who would overcome all other rule and bring in the end of history and establish the kingdom of God, a kingdom that would last for eternity. It's hard to say how the wise men established that there was a king coming, but it's clear that Herod got the message. The wise men were not searching for him. Or indeed another king that had been installed by man. They are searching for the final king. The king to end all kings. And of course, unlike 
uh, Anna and Simeon from Luke 2, this is the last thing that Herod as ruler was looking for. He didn't even know the simple scriptures about where the Messiah was to be born. So Herod, he, he gets these priests and these scribes and he says, where is this king to be born? And the scholars, they focus in on one passage. It's recorded here in Matthew 2. But it's a passage that's taken from Micah 5 and 2. And it's pretty much an exact paraphrase. But if you'd like to switch to Micah 5 and 2, you'll, you'll see it clearer. It records this. It prophesies this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now this doesn't sound particularly extraordinary in isolation. And the reason for that is the only purpose in which the scribes quoted this text was to directly answer Herod's question. Because the only question he asks is, where was the Christ to be born? And they have answered that by taking Micah's prophecy. He's to be born in Bethlehem. But what if Herod had asked them who, or had even asked them to read on, would he have gained a greater understanding? If you read Micah 5 and 2 in its entirety, it says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And maybe even look at verse 4 and 5. It says this, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. So this, this coming king is not just coming and being in the womb of his mother Mary. His goings forth are from old, it says, from ancient days. Or as John's gospel says in John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the King of the Jews who was. This was Jesus. This was the Word incarnate, the one who was present at the, in the beginning of time, the one who has always been. And he is stepping down now to be fully man, yet fully God. I don't know about you, but for me this is such an encouragement. Whenever you find yourself in that spot when, when things aren't going as planned, and there's been a lot of that in 2020, where life has become really tough, when your mind it starts to to wonder and perhaps you begin to, to question your faith or indeed wonder if God is even really there. Is this not the most divine medicine? To read scripture written probably 400 years after the conclusion of the Old Testament, which fulfills fully and wholly and undeniably everything prophesied about the King who was to come. And then to trace that back, as it does here, right back to the beginning of time, 
to understand that he was present in creation. The very word of God. The king of the Jews who was to come and to rescue people like you and like me. What love. What a savior. The king of the Jews who was, and now secondly, the king of the Jews who is. Jesus is the king of the Jews, but don't let that title suggest to you that it is only the the Jews that he is king over. Rather understand that Jesus' reign as king is universal and applies to all humankind. We can see from the, the very two first verses of Matthew that the wise men already understand this because they proclaim this. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. These men are from the east and therefore not of Jewish heritage, yet they come to worship by ancient prophecy or by divine intervention. These men recognized that the star that had appeared and that they had followed was a marker, an illumination of something much greater than anything that they had ever understood before. And therefore they they seek and they come to worship. You will notice in Matthew's narrative that it doesn't tell us about the the shepherds coming to visit Jesus in the stable. His focus is immediately on these foreign wise men. And therefore we can say that Matthew's gospel portrays Jesus at the beginning and at the ending of his gospel as a universal Messiah for all nations, not just for the Jews. In our first text here, the, the worshippers are these wise men. They were Gentiles. They were unclean. And when you get to the end of Matthew's gospel, which is chapter 28, the last words are these. As Jesus gives his his great commission following his death and resurrection, he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This not only opened the door for us as Gentiles to rejoice in the Messiah, It added proof that he was the Messiah. Because one of the repeated prophecies throughout the Old Testament is that the nations and kings would in fact come to him as ruler of the world. Isaiah 60 verse 3, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So Matthew, he adds this proof to the Messiahship of Jesus and shows that he is the Messiah. A king, a promise fulfiller for all the nations, not just for Israel, for us, and not just for the Jews. How should we respond to that? How should we respond to the king of the Jews that is? Let me offer you three short thoughts in response to what we have just considered. Firstly, He is the one to be worshipped. It is God's design that we should worship Jesus. It was by God's design that the star led the wise men to Jesus. 
This is not something the star was capable of in itself. The whole universe is commanded and orchestrated by God such that his son should receive our worship. This is God's design. It was done then and he is still doing it now. His aim is for the nations, all the nations, to worship his son. This is God's will for everybody. It's his will for your colleagues in your workplace, for our neighbors in the street, for our friends and for our families. And it's our job, it's incumbent upon us to tell them. If we were to to follow Matthew's narrative through from, from beginning to end, you will see that he moves from this come and see pattern to a pattern of go and tell. The wise men and the shepherds, they came and saw But we are commanded in the Great Commission to go and tell. And when you go and tell, you find three types of people, don't you? And they're all listed here in our passage. You find people like Herod, who react badly to you. Something stirs up trouble in their hearts, and they become negative to the gospel. In Herod's instance, he thought or sought to destroy it. In others, you find just complete ambivalence. People like the scribes and scholars who are learned and thoughtful, yet show absolutely no interest in trying to find out what Jesus is about. Herod's scribes and scholars and his chief priests, they must have known their scriptures. They must have recognized that the wise men were onto something, yet they show no desire to explore it any further. It's incredible. And then you find those who have a receptive ear and an open heart to the gospel. And church, we have a responsibility to tell all three groups and pray for all three groups, perhaps maybe even the first two groups more earnestly than the third. After all, we are praying and we are calling and we are worshiping the God who orchestrates the cosmos. The second thought, he is the one who calls us to come, and we should be obedient to that calling. Just as the star beckoned the wise men to come, and just as the angels woke the shepherds to invite them to to come, Jesus beckons us too. And that beckoning, that that calling isn't just for a select few. It's not just for the Jew or for the Gentile. It's not just for the the super spiritual amongst us or those with an embryonic faith. It's a calling for all of us to come and to worship. A calling for all of us to come and to be present with Jesus, to follow him and to be more like him. He calls and he transforms Romans 8 and 30, and those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. We need not wait for God's call. We know that we've already been given it. We can be rest assured that God has called us to himself to follow him and to be more like him. The scriptural view of calling also reveals that wherever we are and whatever we are doing, we're exactly where we are meant to be. We are called by God to this place that we find ourselves in right now.
There's no need necessarily to think of God's call in terms of a particular place or a particular people group. We're already in the place of God's calling. And we can get along with it by just being good witnesses to him right here, right now. Thirdly, he is the one who saves. And that is why we should make him our king. Perhaps the most commonly known reference to Jesus as king of the Jews is made much later in Jesus' life. If you return to the gospel according to John, you would read this from chapter 19 in the lead up to Jesus' crucifixion. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and he sat him down on the judgment seat, a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross into the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it above the cross. It read this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather write, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. It's interesting that the the majority of references to Jesus as king of the Jews are made, in fact, by non-Jews. The Jews struggle to regard Jesus as the rightful king. We have no king but Caesar, they cried. Even when the the sign is placed above Jesus' body on the cross, they make it clear that he isn't their king. Do not write this, Pilate. Rather say, this man said, I am king of the Jews. But we know already that Jesus did not make himself a king because he has always been a king. He was king before he came. He was king as he stood in front of Pilate and he is the king of kings today. That is why it's no surprise that Pilate again says more than he actually realizes he says when he declares, Behold your king. Verse 14 of this passage from John highlights that Jesus' crucifixion was at the time of Passover, the time when the sacrificial lamb was being slaughtered by the Jews. In the book of Revelation, we we see this striking image of a lamb on a throne. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is the king who deserves to sit on the throne as judge of all people. 
He is the lion and the lamb. That image of the lion's authority and a lamb's meekness. The weakness of a a bleeding lamb upon the strength of a powerful throne. That's the image that we see on the cross. That is where Jesus defines power and authority. The king embodied as the perfect lamb to give us salvation. Who is the king in our lives today? Is it he, Jesus, the king of the Jews? Or do our lives reflect something that is truer of the Jews' position, which is to enthrone a Caesar over Jesus? Do our positions, do our relationships, do our habits sometimes displace the true king? Do our thoughts and our words and our actions and our manner reflect a life changed by the true king? What do we call for to be crucified? Is it our sin and our shame and our guilt? Or do we turn ourselves to the true king who is able to take all these things from us? He is the one who saves. Jesus is the king of the Jews who is. The king of the Jews who was. The king of the Jews who is. And finally and very briefly, the king of the Jews who is to come. This narrative from our text speaks about the first advent. The first coming of our Savior Jesus into the world. But we know that the the second advent or the second coming of Christ is a necessary feature of the gospel message. It's so necessary that it's mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. The second coming of Jesus is the personal, visible, physical return of Jesus to earth to consummate the salvation of his people, to be glorified in his people and to judge those who have refused his gospel of grace. At the first coming of Jesus, he came as a suffering servant, as a sacrificial lamb, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and to inaugurate the kingdom of God. But we read in Hebrews 9 that he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await his return, to consummate the kingdom in its fullness. And as we draw closer to Friday, to Christmas Day, as our thoughts turn to the first advent, to the birth of Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Savior of the world, our Emmanuel, as we reflect on his fulfillment wholly and truly of the prophecies, as we reflect on our need to worship him, as we think about his his grace and his love, let us too remember that he is coming back again. And Christian, let that thought motivate you and spur you on as you proclaim his gospel this Christmas season. He is, as they say, the reason for the season. And he is coming back for his people. And we must eagerly await that return. Let us be mindful this Christmas of the king who was, the king who is, and the king 
who is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you gave your Son on our behalf. Lord, that you had a a plan to rescue us from our disobedience and from our sin. And Lord, that you provided Jesus, the one who wholly and truly fulfills all the prophecies made in the Old Testament, the one who came and was fully man yet fully God, the one who died on that cross on our behalf and then rose triumphant over the grave, the one who is to come back and to bring us home with you. Lord, we give you thanks for your mercy and for your grace. And Lord, we pray that that would resonate deep within our hearts. And Lord, that we would feel encouraged and challenged to share that message with others this Christmas. In your precious Son's name. Amen.